Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Death. It's the one thing that is guaranteed for us all. Sorry, I know that's a bit of a morbid start, but actually, it's the most ordinary thing in the world. But is that all there is? Just death? Blanket nothingness? A numbness for those who leave and those they leave behind. I remember in the late summer of 2016 asking the same thing. I was lying on my deathbed, in a hospital, in a coma, and hooked up to a machine that was breathing for me. I have really vivid memories of being in the coma, clear as day, even now, nearly six years later. My body, damaged and exhausted, had completely given up. But it was bizarre because my mind was very much alive. I was angry frustrated and really annoyed. Is this it? I'm 33 and I fought so hard to overcome so much, multiple life-defining traumas, and now this? What was the point if it all ends here? I was mad as hell. I obviously survived to tell the tale. We'll go more into that during this series but I found myself suffering from excruciating post-traumatic stress disorder, often abbreviated to PTSD, and asking myself, what was it I experienced? Did I meet death? It was difficult to quantify. I was raised in an atheist household, and my adulthood circle of friends are, well, sceptical about religion too. So I was tentative, but... I also asked the question, was it God? Or was it just my imagination muddled by the drugs that I was on? My brother, who's very funny, he was sitting by my bedside that summer. That's what he thought, and he thinks that now. Nobody really takes it seriously when I say I had a near-death experience. It even feels funny saying it now. I'm not sure what I think, to be honest. I find myself laughing over it when I tell the story. Like, maybe that's just me trying to cope with my trauma. Some certainties, though. I was given 24 hours to live. I had electrodes placed all over my head. The doctors thought I was brain damaged. I was brought back to life. Experts said it was a miracle I survived. And... When I woke up from the coma, I said to my mum and brother that I'd met death, even to the doctors as well. I was utterly convinced. And it's been bothering me ever since. We talk about fighting battles and beating illnesses against the odds every day, but we hardly talk about the end of life, the journey we will all someday take, and what happens after. It really is the greatest mystery of our lives. What happens after we die? I'm Charlie Webster, and I'm going to try and play the role of death detective. This 
is died and survived. A beginning or an end? Is there consciousness after death? And, well, maybe the bigger question is, should the possibility of an afterlife reflect on how we live in the here and now? Life after death is a centuries-old debate and one that we are moving closer to answering. But this podcast is also heavily influenced by the millions of us that have experienced a near-death encounter. My NDE, as we'll call them, has changed my life. I have different thoughts, different feelings than before I almost died. My relationships with family and friends are stronger and more connected. And I'm not alone in that. You are not alone. This series will dig deep into what awaits and how we can steer ourselves towards our inevitable demise. Cultures and beliefs guide us on that journey towards the end. But is it truly the end? Like, full stop? Period? How much of our past will present itself in the future, behind the veil, the curtain? There are endless descriptions for death, but which, if any, are anything close to accurate? There are more people than you might realize who have seen what might await us all after life. Ready or not, I haven't written a will. I can't die. What are you on about? Is this really it? I don't understand. This doesn't make sense. What is the point of my life if I die now? I've fought so hard to be here and now you expect me to just die? There was a time when I wanted that, but not now. We are of course dealing, you could even say debating, with what exists after we die, and why. As we will hear, those who have counted a near-death experience have subsequently transformed parts of their lives. Some report pleasant events, almost euphoric, for others, and this is my own personal experience too. It was a far darker, more malevolent experience. The term near-death experience came into popular terminology in Dr. Raymond Moody's 1975 book, Life After Life. Hello, Dr. Raymond Moody, how are you? It's Charlie Webster here. So I thought the best place for us to start this journey was with the best-selling author and psychiatrics opening thoughts on life after near death. I think a lot of the way people look at this, it could be improved a lot by just simple critical thinking. Before I went to medical school, I was a philosophy professor. This is a much more complicated thing than the parapsychologist, for example, Mm. make out. But in philosophy, I think that probably three figures identified the major problems better than anyone else. And the first, of course, is uh, Plato, right, who said that one of the big problems is that we all love wonderful stories, and I've heard thousands of these, and I can't wait to hear the next one, you know. And Plato said there's a story has to be present because the notion itself, life after death, is self-contradictory, right? So you have to have something to get started. So what that always is, is a narrative, right? A story. Mm. What Plato observed was that 
if you're really interested in the proof of life after death, for example, that you have to have some sort of set of concepts to link the experiential narratives with the statement of life after death. And that's just very difficult. And then later on, David Hume said, by the mere light of reason, it seems difficult to prove the immortality of the soul. He said, some new species of logic is requisite for that purpose, and some new faculties of the mind that they may enable us to comprehend that logic. And that is a true statement, if you think it through. I mean, it's like the logic we have and the mind we have are not sufficient. Yeah, it's almost like how can we approach this with a logical mind or get a logical conclusion when it's something that isn't logical. Right. The great one there, one that everybody would know, was A.J. Ayer, who pointed out that the whole notion of an afterlife is self-contradictory. In 2022, the fact is that it's a conceptual problem rather than a scientific problem. Dr. Moody's words are, though, at odds with other opinion leaders. The International Association for Near-Death Studies lists a series of stunning statistics that make you think... Is there something real in all of this? About one in ten patients with cardiac arrest in a hospital setting experiences a near-death experience. As I said, I'll use NDE for short. Surveys taken in the US, Australia and Germany suggest that up to 15% of the population have had NDEs. Every day in the US, this is phenomenal, there are 774 NDEs, according to the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. A large study conducted in the Netherlands showed that 18% of people who suffered a cardiac arrest and were clinically dead had later reported an NDE. But what I find so interesting is that there is no significant correlation that's been found between religious beliefs and the likelihood or depth of the near-death experience. I also thought it was influenced by belief, but apparently not. And age, race, sexual orientation, economic status also show no connection to the experience reported. And there is no evidence linking the means of coming close to death, such as accidents or suicide, and the likelihood of having a harrowing NDE. Later in the series, we'll look at the after-effects of NDEs, including my own. In several studies, nearly all near-death experiences report a strong decrease or complete loss of the fear of death as a result of their NDEs. At least 98% of surveyed NDEers now believe that there is life after death. I'm not quite sure where I fall in that stat at the moment. NDEers, including suicide attempters, do not generally attempt to take their lives again. Spiritual growth, knowing a higher power, God, Inner peace and a sense of purpose and love in life characterize the changes most meaningful to NDEers. Over 80% of surveyed NDEers expressed a strong increase in their concern for others and that life has meaning or purpose. Among surveyed NDEers, 89% report an increase in psychic phenomena or healing abilities following their NDEs. I haven't quite tested that one out yet. Well, Let me start by saying, based on research, we have about 90% of people who survive a close brush with death don't remember anything. 10% remember a near-death experience of some form. We haven't been able to find any difference between those two groups. 
This is Dr. Jan Holden, president of the International Association for Near-Death Studies. What I like to say when I'm lecturing about NDEs is that they have three levels. There's a deep level that involves some universal features, and they include the, the experience of your consciousness functioning apart from your body. Research shows that if I were to talk to you in 20 years, you would still say the same thing. There's actual research of asking people to describe their NDE and then coming back to them 20 years later and asking to describe it again, and then doing an analysis of the words that they use and finding no significant difference in, in the way that they describe it. Whereas that is not true of normal memories of events, which many of which we, you know, completely forget. So there's this deep level where your consciousness functioning apart from your physical body, this clarity this vividness of memory and meeting non-material entities and seeing the material world, perceiving the material world from a position outside the body. Now, no near-death experience includes all of these, but if you look at several hundred near-death experiences, they're going to include some combination of these. These are things that have even been looked at across cultures So we know that beyond culture, there are some fundamental phenomena in near-death experiences that are universal. However, they usually get expressed at the second level in terms of the person's culture. So like you might have seen this dark mass, whereas someone from Thailand might have seen a Yamatut, which is an assistant to the god of death. So you see that communication with a non-material entity, which is universal, gets expressed in the cultural form of the individual. And then if you look just within people of the same culture, there's a third level that is individual where everybody has a different experience. So even within the same culture, everybody's near-death experience is going to have unique features that relate to them. Right. So those three levels, universal, cultural, individual. Dr. Jeffrey Long founded a research website into NDEs, and he describes the impact this has had on his own outlook on life, both now and quite possibly after this life. I started studying near-death experiences over 20 years ago. When I first set up my research website, the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation, we're using the best scientific questions to try to understand about near-death experiences. At the very beginning, I was, if you will, a skeptic. I I thought these were so unworldly, so so incredible. You know, everything I knew as a doctor said, this doesn't resonate with anything that I've learned in medical school or since that time. So I was really wanting to know for myself personally, are near-death experiences real? After about the first two dozen I received, I was amazed. Here was these overwhelmingly consistently described experiences, uh, remarkably unearthly, powerfully life transformative. So very quickly, the scientist in me said, well, what's what's real is consistently observed. So near-death experiences are in a word real. Well, that was over 20 years ago. It's informative to learn about what happens during a near-death experience some of the important messages, the consistency from a scientific point of view, particularly what we can learn about consciousness. But it goes deeper than that. It's also inspirational. I mean, every one of us sometime in our life has worried about what happens 
when we die or our loved ones die. And yet here by the thousands, near-death experiences seem to answer one of those great questions of humankind. Every shred of evidence in near-death experience, the lines of evidence converge on it being a reality of an afterlife, a wonderful afterlife. And that's for all of us. Just when you were talking then, I wrote down two words, transformative and inspirational, because Mm -hmm. they seem to be the words I keep using. And I think when I first started this journey, I Mm -hmm. had my own experience and I grappled with it. I felt lost with it. I felt a bit weird and didn't know really what to think about it. Everything I look at is the debate. Is this real? Is this not real? What is this? Is this an afterlife? No, there's not. Yes, there is. Whereas actually maybe we're missing the most important aspect is what is important to me as somebody who's experienced that? What is important to us as people right now? And to me, that is what we can maybe take in the inspiration from people's experiences of how we view our own lives and death because how we think about that probably influences our decisions more than we know, right? Right. Would you agree? No question about that. I actually have explored in our survey uh, that very issue about the fear of death. We ask directly in the survey, uh, what was your level of fear of death at the time you had your near-death experience? And then at the time they shared it, which is about 15 years later. And what we've seen is what basically all other near-death experience researchers find And that is a dramatic reduction in the level of fear of death. And and that's not surprising. And you should know that because uh, from, I suspect, yours and certainly many, many other people, of course, they have a reduced fear of death because they know what lies beyond death's door because of their own personal experience. They're aware that what lies in the afterlife, what lies after the end of our earthly mortal existence is not to be feared. It's wonderful. Uh, If you had a typical near-death experience, which a great majority do, that's certainly the ability to live your life more courageously, uh, less fearfully, uh, having some sort of answers to the big questions that, that have haunted humanity for pretty much all of its existence is profoundly reassuring. And of course, that can ultimately be very positively life transforming, too. Do you think you've gone through, uh, gosh, I but, but it's thousands, but here I've got you've investigated over 3,500 near-death experiences. I haven't spoke to 3,500 people, <laughs> not, not yet anyway. <laughs> um, no, that takes a long time, yeah, by the way. <laughs> I can imagine. And just when you said about um, it's wonderful, mm-hmm. and then I obviously, when I talk to people, I then start to internalize about my own experience, and I found it fearful but I think the reason why was because it showed me that I really didn't want to go and that I had more life to give. And I think I fear being in a critical illness situation, which is what I was in, because it was horrible. But I don't think I fear death because I feel that, my gosh, if I can get through that. And in my situation, the doctors said that they were so surprised that I basically lived um, because it was that bad. So then to me, I take a lot of heart from that and I do see it as a second life and a second chance really. And and it also gives me heart that I feel like I'm supposed to be here. Would you say that from a lot of the people you've spoken to? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm glad you pulled out that life-threatening event. Wow, it sounds like that was truly a close brush with death. But what you're sharing, I've heard hundreds, maybe a thousands times 
uh, exactly like that. It's uh, it's inspirational in the sense that you have that close brush with death. You have a near-death experience. You realize that your consciousness, who you are and all that you are, doesn't really end with the death of your physical body, but it moves on. There's some kind of existence beyond just our earthly physical body that we're aware of. So I think that's very inspiring. Certainly a big part of that reason, I think that people dramatically reduce their fear of death or have their fear of death completely go away. You are absolutely not alone. Vast numbers of people have come before you had near-death experiences and dramatically reduced or very commonly eliminated their fear of death and then go on living their life more courageously, you know, in a way more out loud. They have the, with reducing that fear, they can reach out to humanity more lovingly. It paradoxically, even though that's a, you know, one of the greatest things anybody would fear, a life-threatening event in what we call in the uh, research community after effects, those after effects can be just like you and so many others have described and be profoundly positive and, and have a huge positive impact for the rest of your life, just like I've heard from so many others. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly focus pops or lolly mellow pops for kids. And for parents, try three new brainy chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The internet, of course, helps to access these thousands of near-death experiences and investigation websites. But NDEs are not solely a 20th or 21st century phenomena. In fact... There's historical evidence that humans have documented them for several thousand years. So what does this mean? I myself experienced a traumatic pull between what I believe to be this life and the next, even witnessing my own deceased grandparents waiting for me. So what part does culture and belief play in what we experience at the end of life? Notable author and Egyptologist Dr. Gregory Shushan is able to shed further light We were laughing, though, because I asked Dr. Shushan, are we still having the same conversation that started thousands of years ago? Has anything actually changed? I think it's, (laughs) I don't think it's, it's, the only thing I think has changed is, well, two things. Cultures have changed and different um, cultural influences and ideas and beliefs, as well as medical technology. So not only are more people more able to come back from clinical death or apparent death or however you want to put it, but they're also able to come back from longer periods of being apparently dead. So maybe NDEs are getting deeper because of that. Maybe people are staying dead longer, so they're seeing more and experiencing more. But for the most part, you know, all the elements were there. You know, the very first uh, recorded NDE might be the Epic of Gilgamesh. He was a famous Sumerian king. Um, There are texts before the Epic of Gilgamesh, Sumerian texts, where where he was called Bilgamesh. And there's one called The Death of Bilgamesh. And and it describes 
essentially what we would now consider an NDE, where he dies and he goes to this other world and he appears before a being of light who assists him in reviewing his life and then determining what his afterlife is going to be based on that assessment. And then he comes back to life and, you know, has, has learned this lesson and is transformed by it. Whether this is just a myth or not, or whether it was based on an actual NDE that he had, mm. um, or just general knowledge of NDEs, possibly. But to me, it seems like we can't exclude that they knew about NDEs because it's just too much of a coincidence. But those basic features are still happening now. When somebody says, you know, I died, I saw a being of light, I uh, had a life review, and then they sent me back, and now I'm a better person. Nobody says, I saw the sun god Utu or the sun god Ray, because people don't believe in those religions anymore for the most part. So your example of feeling like you were actually in the room with your grandparents when you were out of your body and in a you know near-death state, that's interesting because that's not as much of a common feature in contemporary NDEs. Most people, they leave their body and they're you know, going to some other realm with the being of light or whatever. That's the more sort of typical narrative we have. Mm. Uh, there's a medieval Japanese example that describes exactly what you said and some Native American examples. Um, and in fact, some of the Mesopotamian myths too feature this kind of urgency of the person out of their body trying to convince people on earth that they're there and that they want to be seen and they want to be, you know, so no, actually look at me. This is me. That's not me lying there in that coffin or whatever it was. That's interesting because it's, that's was probably not a cultural influence in your NDE because that's probably not a belief that you have. But the fact that it happens across cultures suggests that that happens to some people when they have NDEs. You've just given me goosebumps. I mean, you're looking at me and you could probably see my reaction there. I was a bit like... Yeah, a bit wide-eyed. A bit, a bit wide-eyed and, and I kind of had this... I've got sweaty palms. That's exactly what happened to me. It was so bizarre. I was, yeah, desperate. And you said urgency to, like, convince that I was still there. And my mind was still so alive, which was interesting because um, there was times where there was just no brain activity. Right. My physical body was dead, but my mind was more alive than ever. It was like hyperactive right. where I was really trying to, yeah, convince people that I was still there. I didn't want to die and that I wasn't going to and to convince these people to hold, to hang on and not let me go. Right. I just find it fascinating listening to you and to hear that you found records of that and comparisons of that because you're right it wasn't anything I knew about before mm -hmm. I had no belief I was also brought up in an atheist background right and I you know I'm sure I'm influenced by a lot of culture but I can't yeah. think directly that I was influenced or ever heard anything to do with the afterlife or even I mean it maybe sound makes me sound a little bit ignorant beforehand but it's not something I'd ever thought about, to be honest, until this yeah. happened to me. Yeah. And, you know, we all have, uh, just because of the culture we live in, we can't escape, you know, Christian images of heaven and hell or whatever, or just, um, you know, idea, you know, even in old movies, they'll, they'll show like picture of the ghost leaving the body. And it's this, you know, negative superimposed yeah. moving away. Oh, I've seen loads of those. I've definitely seen loads <laughs> of those films. Like I'm a yeah. huge horror fan. So I've right. de <laughs> I definitely have seen a lot of that stuff. Yeah. But it's also a kind of intuitive belief that there is a soul that's different from our bodies. And even if we don't really think about it or, or even would say we're skeptical or atheistic about it, 
there is something that a lot of people, even in language we use, you know, we talk about ourselves as if, you know, we're, we're separate from our bodies in a way, you know. And there have been studies where, where, you know, very young children have kind of, not that they're refusing to accept death, but when they're, you know, told that, you know, if, if your uncle died, where is he? They wouldn't just say um, he's gone, he's dead. They would say they'd make some, something up about where he's gone. So it's this, yeah, I mean, whether that's that's an intuitive belief because we're too afraid of facing death or whether it's because we're intuiting that we actually don't just completely die, uh, that we survive death, it's, you know, it's that's another question. In terms of yourself, when you started this journey with your studies, and I know you were at Oxford in the UK, has it changed to what you're thinking right now? Like, did you have a preconceived idea or belief and has this made you more certain about certain things or has it just i'd be just intrigued about that your own process and the masses of research that you've done yeah um i I mean i also grew up an atheist and my mom was kind of the hippie generation and she was like but the intellectual hippie branch so she was interested in you know all this huxley and um you know, Ram Dass and this kind of spiritual, she wrote her thesis on William Blake and the psychedelic experience. Oh, wow. so, so I have this kind of... So that's um, your influence. <laughs> yeah, that's how I grew up. And, and so she would, you know, uh, take me to the Hare Krishna temple to dance when I was five years old Did or whatever. She? Wow. But then my grandmother would take me to a, a you know, a Catholic wedding. Um, my father's family would go to a, a Jewish wedding or a bar mitzvah of a cousin. I kind of grew up as a comparative religion scholar, you know, and so it was just kind of ending up, you know, fleshing that out formally in, in the academic world. You know, I've always been open-minded, but also very skeptical at the same time. So I, I guess I would say I've come to realize that there is a sort of uh, a rational argument for belief in an afterlife and there's also evidence that would support that from NDEs, especially, that has not been sufficiently debunked by materialist scholars who, who think there's not an afterlife, as well as the fact that I think there's also a kind of philosophically coherent way to think about what an afterlife might be like, even with all the differences and similarities across cultures. Um, I don't think there's a problem with all these differences in seeing it as an actual afterlife experience hasn't necessarily changed my beliefs in any fundamental way, but it has kind of made me think that it's possibly more of a rational, reasonable option than maybe I thought it was before. As we progress through this podcast series, we'll learn more and more of what is open to interpretation, what has been scientifically proven, and what is culturally believed. So many near-death experiences from so many different perspectives, and that word perspective is key to all of this. Proof is final, but is death? What does await us? And is it different based on how you lived, how you died, and how you accept the final hours as our eyes close to this existence? I wasn't improving, I was getting worse, and then I think there was a moment where it just got really bad, and they said to my mum, prepare yourself, like, I don't think she's going to survive the night. And I do wonder if this happened in that moment. We'll never know, obviously. <laughs> um, can't like do any scientific experiment to work out, but from the doctor's point of view, 
in that moment, I, and it says in the notes that I was aggressively resuscitated. So I really believe it was that moment where I, basically my heart stopped. And I was face to face with this thing. Episode two is ready for you now. Died and Survived is hosted and produced by me, Charlie Webster, alongside my dear friend, Paul Woods-Turley, with research and production support from Jill Hoffman and Kyle Epler. Recording by Stephen Sletton, edited and sound designed by Aaron Florence. Lionsgate Sound, engineered by Pilgrim Media Group. <laughs>